The rest of you, you can turn to 1 Peter, chapter 5, and we're actually going to finish up our study through 1 Peter this morning. But just before we get there, I just want to highlight just a couple of things. Is uh, First of all, we're in process of doing something on the website. Uh, if, if you've been to the new website, you know there's a give button, and you can... You can press that and it'll go to the online giving and you don't ever have to worry about writing checks or anything anymore. Uh, but we're also going to have a little drop-down menu there when, when you see it and it says, it'll say general fund. You can click that and we're going to open a chili night fund. And so if you just want to help out with that, with just a, a contribution kind of periodically or just randomly or, or just a one-time thing, uh, you will know that that's exactly where that is going to go. So that's just for, for your information. And then the second thing, uh, I just want to ask for prayer uh, for my family. Is uh, For those of you who know, I have a brother who's in the military, and he is being deployed uh, December 5th off to Kuwait for eight months. And so if you can just pray for him. Many of you have met him. He's been here a, a couple of times to visit. And so if you can just pray for him, and specifically for my parents. Uh, this is his first tour that he's going on, and so they're they're certainly a little overwhelmed with everything. So if you could just uh, be in prayer for him. His name is Joel. Uh, I know he would appreciate that as well. All right, let's, uh, let's dive in here to 1 Peter. So before we read this, uh, we're just looking at verses 6 to 14 at the end of chapter 5. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to go back in context just a little bit to remind us because there's some implication to it. And then I just want to remind us of the book as a whole. As Jordan said, is First Peter deals with suffering. All of us are going to suffer at various times in various ways. Many of you currently right now are going through challenge, are going through illness, are going through the loss of a loved one. There's all kinds of things that are going on in our lives that cause us grief and pain and uncertainty. And sometimes we don't know exactly how to deal with that. Sometimes we're not sure why God has allowed these things to happen. And so... 1 Peter specifically is written for Peter to help us understand not the whys to our suffering, because understanding those are, are difficult things. Uh, and often, I think, in our life, we won't understand why we went through certain things until eternity. And, and maybe even then, it won't even matter. But how we suffer and where we choose to put our hope and why we choose to put our hope in God in the midst of suffering is a really interesting thing. I was reading through uh, a commentary in the book of Acts for a seminary class, and, and he mentions over and over in this commentary that the church, when persecuted, when going through suffering, grows faster than when things are smooth and easy. And you see that all through the New Testament, and we're experiencing that in our own world, is in parts of the world where they are per persecuted for their faith, the church is flourishing, and yet in North America specifically, where we've had more religious freedom than anywhere else in the world, is we're finding the church is shrinking. And so persecution, suffering, and pain, God has purpose in that. And so I just want to remind you of that. And if, if you are new uh, this morning or visiting, uh, and you want some context to that, reading through First Peter won't take you very long, but it'll be a very big encouragement to you. So let's just read verses 6 to 14, and then we'll deal with just a little bit of context from last week. Peter says this to us, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, the, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. 
your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is a Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. He begins this section by saying, humble yourselves, and then if you have a, a more literal translation, it may either start or then have this word, therefore. And again, we talked about this last week. Whenever we read that, it's tied directly to the previous passage. And so the beginning of chapter 5 last week we talked about is an exhortation from Peter to the leadership, to the elders in the various churches that he's writing to. Uh, And we talked about the reality that God's plan for the church is the plurality of elders. Every single New Testament church that you find, that is the leadership structure that God has ordained to it. And so we talked about how that's why we follow that same structure, and yet we also were reminded that we, we could use one or two more men to step into that role. And so if you are called, if you feel a calling from God to be an elder and to help in the leadership of the church, by all means, we would love to sit down with you. That's Lee and myself, uh, the two current elders. Love to sit down with you and see if this is something that God is calling of you to do. So in this, Peter commands to the elders, and he says a couple of things. And he says, first of all, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Very simply put, he's saying you have to love your people. The people under your charge you have to love and you have to care for because if you don't, it will become a compulsion. It'll be something you have to do. But if you love them, then you'll have a proper attitude of that. He says don't do it for shameful gain. Uh, And again, I said this last week, is the role of an elder is not a glamorous thing. There is not a lot of worldly prestige that comes with that. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of heartache. There's a lot of prayer. And there's a lot of uncertainty of of seeking the will of God and not always being 100% confident in what we're doing. And perhaps that's true in your own life is is you know that God's called you to things, but but you're not exactly sure how and and why and when and some of those things. If I'm being really honest with you, very, very rarely am I 100% confident I know exactly what God's doing. A lot of times it's just stepping out in faith, believing in obedience. This is what God has called, and so we do that. The third thing he says is to be an example to the flock. And, and so we looked at various other passages in Scripture talking about uh, what the role of an elder is and what kind of lifestyle he should lead. And so if you're a leader, and, and again, this isn't only to elders, though this exhortation is written specifically to them, but I challenged all of us that all of us teach at some point in our lives. There's people under our care that we model things for, and so we are called to model them well. We are called to live, uh, several places it said this word, above reproach. To live with such a godly example that when people declare negative things about you, when they try and convince people things, that they look at our lives and they go, no, this is a person who honors and loves God. Not this is a person who's perfect. None of us are. 
but how we respond to our imperfections, how we respond to the moments where we need to repent, where we need to admit that we were wrong, those are huge moments for us. And if we can respond in a way that honors God in that, then that shows people how we live. And then there was a command given to the congregation to subject themselves to the elders. And I don't want to deal with the subjection of that very much anymore because that's been a predominant theme throughout First Peter, and you can go on the website uh, to listen to the various messages about that. But Hebrews reminds us that, simply put as this, is we're called to submit, and so we're going to submit because God's asked us to. And then the second part of that is in any relationship, that submission will only aid and help that relationship, and it'll be one where we mutually are trying to accomplish the same things. So remember that the leadership of the local church exists to proclaim Christ to the world and to help others grow in that. And then remember that in Matthew 28, Jesus proclaimed to all of his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. We're all in this together with the same goal. And so because of that context, he then says, so humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because of these things, because God has placed the church the way that he has placed it, because the suffering that is going on in your lives, because of all of those things, he says, humble yourselves. And in fact, it's a command. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. When we approach God without the proper amount of humility, it never ends well. Never in Scripture do we see it end well when somebody goes up to, or, or speaks to God or speaks to Jesus and, and does so in their own way without this humility. Uh, various examples of that, you read through the book of Job, and Job responds really well at the beginning to his suffering. But then at some point, he starts to get vindicated and he starts to allow the frustration or possibly the resentment of God. And he goes, basically says, this is God, I don't deserve this. You owe me an answer. It doesn't end very well for him. God says, where were you? Where were you when I created the world? He says, Job, explain all these things to me because clearly you have so much understanding and so much wisdom. Surely you know. The next time you feel yourself getting a little bit sarcastic with your kids, just remember, God got sarcastic with us a few times too, so maybe sarcasm is okay at times. Not always. Let's clarify that a little bit. When you see some of the disciples approach Jesus and, and they get lost in, in their own uh, desire to be great and they argue about who gets to sit next to him. They're elevating themselves and not the mission of the church. And they go, they go promise, promise us that I'll get to sit here and that he'll get to sit here and that we'll have the biggest, most important places in your kingdom. And, and what, does God, or what does Jesus say? Basically, he says, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't even understand. John the Baptist understood, and, and yet he fought with this too as you read through his life. Is he's the forerunner to the Messiah. He comes to prepare the way to declare to everyone, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and he uses the famous words where he says, he must increase, I must decrease. He understood. His role was changing. He wasn't the area of prominence anymore. And so we need to come before God with humility because if we don't, then in those times of suffering, we're going to demand an answer from God and we're going to say, you owe it to me when the truth of what Scripture teaches is there's only one thing that we actually deserve and that's hell. God in his mercy sent Jesus to the cross that we might have an opportunity to be free from the pain 
the, the eternal pain of sin. That's the only thing that we deserve is death. And so everything is a gift. Everything is gracious. And, and so in the same way when you're a child and your parents say no to something and you think it's only because they don't want me to enjoy this. It's only because they don't want me to have fun. We've all said some of those things to our parents. You become a parent and you realize, no, 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 the reason that we say those things is because we desperately love them and we want to protect them and we want to care for them. The same thing is true of God. God allows suffering into our life. Uh, and, and even in chapter four nineteen, we read that sometimes it's the very will of God because God cares too much about us to allow us to not suffer. It's a funny sentence, but it's true. If God were to be a God that wouldn't allow suffering, then God would not be preparing us for the world that we find ourselves in. He would not be preparing us for the difficulties and the opposition that we're going to face. Jesus has promised us, in this world you will have trouble, but take our heart, I have overcome the world. Notice he doesn't say it's all going to be okay, which is a pretty Christianese phrase that we use. Don't worry, it'll all be okay. I've been at the bedside of many people who have been given a disease and someone said, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. And then that person's died from that disease. How we phrase things is hugely important. We can still trust God in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the pain. He has purpose in that. But if we just tell someone, oh, it's going to be okay, we start to give them a, a skewed understanding of what okay means. My prayer for Smonga, my son, is not that his life is easy and simple. Is that God does whatever he has to do to get a hold of him so that he has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Whatever he has to do. And sometimes that hurts. Sometimes that's painful. But if we can humble ourselves, recognizing that God's hand is mightier than ours, that he knows, and, and look what the verse says also, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God's desire in your life is actually to exalt you. What a crazy thought to think that the God of the universe, his purpose ultimately in my life is that he would exalt me through the power of Jesus because I've confessed Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. He wants to exalt me to a place that is filled with so much glory, the glory of heaven. He takes it beyond that. And he says, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. It's not just this theological or just this intellectual ascent of it. He's saying there's an emotional side to it too, is cast everything at God because God cares for you desperately. In Hebrews, it reminds us over and over and over that we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who's gone through every bit of suffering that we could possibly understand. God doesn't allow us to go through suffering and then step away from us and say, no, I'm not going to be part of that. He journeys with us in that suffering. And so we can humble ourselves to that kind of a God because he's one that understands. He's one that hurts when we hurt. He's one that goes through. Uh, Jesus himself went through every bit of suffering that we could imagine. Then we read in verse 8, there's a command to us. He says, be watchful. Be sober-minded and be watchful. And if that sounds familiar, it's because we read those very same words in chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 4, verse 7, and there's implications of it all throughout. In 1.13, he specifically says it this way, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've talked a lot throughout this series about preparing for suffering. 
And the reason for that is if we prepare ourselves to understand how to suffer, we give ourselves a much better chance at suffering in a way that honors God. You can only prepare yourself so much for certain things. It's like... It's like when you're... uh, I'm going to use the hockey player analogy just because I pretend to be a hockey player. Is... I can practice all I want, but it's not the same as a game. It's just not. But if I don't practice, I know I'm not going to respond well. It's just that simple. I'm not going to be prepared. And in the same way with our Christian life is we need to be sober. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be watchful. We need to prepare ourselves because the reality of Scripture and what Jesus said is we are going to face trouble. And if we are prepared for those, we have give ourselves a much better chance in how we're going to respond. Specifically, he uses this example here. He says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour you. I just want to stop here at this verse for, for just a little bit. How many of you have ever seen a lion in real life? Anybody? Anybody seen a lion outside of the zoo? Okay, so two things. When we were in Africa, we went to this, this lion park, and uh, we had rented this little car. It was like basically a little Volkswagen rabbit. Like the thing was super tiny. And we drove into this reserve, and you actually drive around through these lions. And thank goodness that the video that Shayla took no longer exists of this. But I was driving the car, and we're in a much smaller car than I'm used to, but the lion's head was above my head. And he starts to approach the car, and the rule is you don't stop the car. You keep driving, because if you stop, they think you're a play toy. And we're driving through this, and I, I was, if you, if you, you don't get a chance to see the video because we lost it, but I was legitimately terrified for my life. They're just coming up to us. You can hear them through the windshield, uh, through the side window, excuse me, and, and you can just, you can just feel the strength and the power that they have, and it was just completely and utterly terrifying. We got out of there, and of course, you know, the gates get closed, and you're like, that was awesome, but I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> then we went back to the place that we were staying, and uh, the, the South African lady there very graciously informed me that that wasn't a real thing, that those are all circus lions that just now live at the little reserve and are fed, and they don't actually fight anymore. So we thought, okay, well, that's no big deal. Let's go on a safari where there's real lions. So, so we get on this safari, and you're in this Jeep, and it's open air. And uh, so there's me and Shayla and Smonga, who's not quite two years old, and another couple with this little infant. And we're in this Jeep, and, and they say, okay, now as we go out, there's two things. Well, I mean, first we saw kind of, you know, the, the other animals that you go to see. But then when it gets close to the lions, he pulls over, and he says, here's what you got to do. There's two things. There's one, the lions look at the Jeep as one entity. And so because it's so big, they won't attack you. Okay, sure, buddy. Uh, that's my first thought. And so he says, so keep your arms inside because if you put your arms outside, they start to think something's up here and they might come and chew your arm off. So you're thinking, okay, that's no problem. Keep your arms inside the vehicle. That is a good thing to live by. But then he says, also be very quiet because they're very sensitive to noise. And so we're like, okay, so we drive up and there's this pride of nine lions. 
And it just happened to be that the, uh, the, the alpha male was getting to a place in his age where he was just getting too old, and the next two were starting to fight him for it. And so Shayla has some incredible pictures of this. They are just fighting it out, and we're from me to fill away from these nine lions. And in that moment, I realized how big a lion is. Uh, we, have, we have photos that you won't believe, but these things are enormous. The power of them, when they smack each other, it's just, it's just unreal. And we just sat there for probably 15 minutes just watching this. And it's just incredible. But all of a sudden, in this one moment, the little baby in front of us whimpered. And nine lion heads turned and looked right at us. And I swear to you, my heart rate was so dangerously high. The, the guy had turned the Jeep off, and he turned the Jeep back on. He was ready to just book it out of there. And he told us as we left that place that that whimper is the same sound as, a, as an animal in distress. And what we learned about lions is that lions are dirty little animals, is they fight and pick on the weakest member always because it's the least amount of work they have to do even though they're so powerful and so strong. And so in this one moment, that whimper happened and that Jeep was turned on and we were ready to go. And the fear in, in all of us, and I mean, I was on hyper alert. I'm a new dad. I don't understand how to be a dad. I was like grabbing my kid. It was just terrifying. But whenever I read this kind of an idea, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It reminds me of that moment because realistically speaking, that lion, if, if you read up on it, you'll understand that lion could have jumped into that Jeep way faster than we could have got away and he could have killed us all in one moment and it would have been over. And all of a sudden, what was this hypothetical? You're in a Jeep, it's safe. They take lo loads of people on these rides. No one ever gets killed, so they say. And and all of a sudden, in this one moment when nine of them look at you with this intent gaze, all that goes out the window. And you're terrified. And when Peter says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Is I think that's a verse that if you've been a Christian for a long time, you just start to forget about. Is life... The normality of life just kind of takes over and we don't think about it. Joby Martin, who's a pastor down in the States, has a, a series on Right Now Media called Act Like Men. And it's a, it's a men's series based on this verse and how we need to respond. And he says, if you knew that there was a lion outside your house, you wouldn't just open the door in your little flip-flops and run outside and grab the newspaper. You would be very aware. And I remember when we first moved here and there's all these animals all of a sudden uh, just periodically around. And I remember when we, Swang and I came across our first bear and then I read um, Traumnuses. You guys had a bear just kind of dinging your doorbell, which isn't very far from us. And, and all of a sudden we were like, uh, do we open the door and let Smonga out? Do we make sure we look at the window first? It's like all of a sudden it became real. Now that, that, Reality was always there. and It's always there. And in a spiritual context, is that reality is always there. It's when I walk out the door, and it's not even, it's, it's just imagery. It's not, it's when I wake up in the morning. Is Satan's goal is to do any and everything he can to discourage me, to build my pride up, and to make me question everything that God is doing. But I quickly forget that. Because I have things I got to do. I got breakfast to make. I got to get Smonga to school. I got to come to work. 
I got a million things on my plate that I got to do. And all those things take precedent. And I don't realize that as soon as my mind is awake, is I'm actively engaged in spiritual warfare because Satan does not want me to accomplish the things that God has laid for me to do that day. I find it so interesting that he uses this analogy. More often in Scripture, God's actually viewed as the lion. What is Satan usually viewed as? Serpent or a snake. And as I was kind of studying through that and trying to figure out why does he do that, is I think the serpent, the snake, that's deception. That he's being sneaky, he's trying to convince you of something. Here, he's just out to kill you. Satan's goal is that he wants to devour anybody who calls on the name of Jesus Christ. Now, praise the Lord that our salvation is not in question, that if we have put our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ, that according to John 20, 10, 28, we know that our salvation is secure. But that doesn't mean that our life is safe, not by any means. In fact, to live a life for Christ means to live a life of danger. When you read through the New Testament, every single one of the disciples, except for John, was killed for their faith. And we're going to look at the life of Peter here in just a moment. But to live a life that honors Christ means to go against the world because the world wants nothing to do with it. And for us to prepare, to be watchful, to be sober-minded. And, and I love this term sober-minded because anything that takes our focus off of the main thing, which is Jesus Christ, inebriates us to a place where we're weak and we're not prepared to face the trials that the world is going to bring to us. We have to be watchful and we have to be prepared. The devil is coming at us. Praise the Lord that we know that God wins. But that doesn't mean that life is going to be easy in that process, and so we need to be prepared. He says, resist him in verse 9. How do we resist him? Firm in your faith, standing firm, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's nothing worse than suffering alone. No matter what it is. When we go through trial and we go through pain, if we isolate ourselves from those around us who love us, it only gets worse and it only gets more painful. When we can surround ourselves with people who care for us and who love us, they might tell us things we don't really want to hear all the time. Sometimes maybe that's good and necessary. Sometimes maybe they shouldn't. But when we surround ourselves with people who we know love us and know care for us, gives us a much better chance at having a proper outlook on it. Because when we separate ourselves from it, all we see is the pain, all we see is the issue, all we see is the torment, all we see is the hurt. We need perspective. We need people to help us. We need people to come and join with us in that. And we need to remind ourselves, I'm not the only person that's going through this. There are many throughout the world going through it. There are many people who are suffering just this week, I got a chance to go visit Andre in the hospital, and there's no nice way to say it. Andre's gone through a rough year, and yet when I was talking with him and we were praying together, all of a sudden, he kind of looked at me and he said, you know what? There's lots that have it way worse than I do, and in that moment, I was convicted of, Greg, your attitude sucks a lot. It's here's someone who's going through so much suffering and pain and choosing to have the right perspective. And then I have a little problem that happens at home. And I go, oh, man, life's hard. I need to be reminded that other people are going through things. There are other people that are going through so much more difficulties than me. 
But then it comes with a promise in verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. That's the promise of what's coming. And here's the challenge, is, is I want all the time, whenever I go through suffering, whenever I go through pain, I don't learn this lesson very well, is I want God to give me answers, or I want God to give me a timeline. Like, when will this end? When, when will this situation that I'm going through, can you, just, can you just give me a date or a moment so that I can move on to the next thing? All that is, is that's not trusting in God. That's not humbling myself under the mighty hand of God. That's saying, God, I... I I just don't want to go through it anymore, so I shouldn't have to. I need to be reminded that the timeline is in God's hand because God knows what all things are. God knows what good things are. God knows when I need the things at the specific times and at the specific moments. God knows exactly what I need to strengthen my faith. This is one of my pet peeves in, in Christian uh, of Christian phrases that we use where we say things like, don't worry, God won't give you more than you can handle. That is very unscriptural. It's taking a verse in Corinthians and twisting it totally around and putting the focus on us and not on God. So the reality is, is God brings me to a place where I can't do it so that I realize, oh, I have to trust him. I have to rely on him. Otherwise, it's about me. Otherwise, my whole life is God will only bring me to a place where I can handle it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. So we need to be reminded of that. It's not about us. It's about him. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me just end with this history and church tradition on, on the life of Peter. I really like Peter because Peter was a hothead who talked first and thought later. I'm sure there's somebody that can relate to that. Peter often responds in ways where, where Jesus has to rebuke him and correct him. In fact, Jesus spoke the harshest words to any of his disciples to Peter when Peter basically says, no, 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 Jesus, you're, you're talking crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus says, uh, get behind me, Satan. That'd be a pretty harsh thing to hear. Peter's mistakes are all through Scripture. Written for forever for us to understand is Peter's the one who denied Jesus three times in his greatest moment of need. And yet Peter learned through those things so that when Peter comes to write his book in, here in 1 Peter and he talks about suffering, he's someone who's modeled it. He's someone that God took and he prepared. And yes, he went through pain and heartache and grief, but he constantly strengthened him to the place where Peter could say these things. He could say, as you suffer, suffer with dignity for Jesus Christ because it's worth it. Because Peter lived that way. According to church history, when Peter was killed, he was, uh, he was crucified, and, and he was crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy of dying in the same way of Jesus Christ. He said, I don't deserve to die the same way that the Lord died. And so he was crucified upside down. Here's somebody who understood what it meant to suffer, and so he can speak these truths into our lives because it's not hypothetical. Peter went through everything that we could possibly imagine. 
And so when you read 1 Peter, we can't say, Peter, you don't really know what I've been through. Now, Peter's been through worse. Peter's been through everything. Peter's been rebuked. Peter's been attacked. Peter's been whipped. Peter's been beaten. Peter was crucified upside down. This is someone that when we read these things, we can get on board with because he lived a life that showed he walked the walk. He didn't just talk the talk. Peter is an incredible example to us, not because he had more power or more faith or any of that. It was because he submitted himself to the Holy Spirit. There's a song written by Jeremy Camp that, that I really like and that sometimes reminds me of this. Uh, he writes it this way. He says, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. Is the Holy Spirit is actively involved in our lives if we claim, if we have called upon the name of Jesus for salvation. And that means he can do anything he wants through us. And there will be times where he calls us to suffer. 419, let those of you who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We can trust in God and we can submit ourselves to him because the Holy Spirit has purpose and meaning in that suffering. Just yesterday, I got a message from friends of mine who, uh, um, a girl that I went to Bible college with and that I worked at camp with who, I don't know if she was 40 yet, she was probably 38, died of cancer. Husband and two young kids at home. I don't know how to process that kind of stuff. When I think about those two boys growing up uncertain of why God's taken their mom, I don't have easy answers for that. And yet this woman put her faith and her trust in Christ. Whether it was easy, whether it was hard, whether the suffering was a little bit, or whether the suffering took her life. And when I see those moments and I see how somebody can journey through suffering and yet have such a gracious attitude, it's only because they've submitted themselves humbly before the Holy Spirit to say, would you work in and through me? Because I can't. And that's a reminder we need to hear often. And so my challenge to us this morning is I know some of you are going through pain and hurt and grief. I know there's tremendous issues in front of you that we can't pretend aren't there. We can't just wash away real easy. But know that Christ journeys through that with you, that he loves you desperately, that he has purpose and meaning in the suffering, even if we maybe don't see it yet. And know that he's given you the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can journey through that suffering and that you can be faithful even to the very last day. I just want you to go home knowing that even though you're in suffering, even though you're in pain, that God loves you desperately. That he alone loves you desperately. Let's pray. God, your love is something far greater than we could ever understand. God, we read in Revelation that one day that, that you will make all things right and that you will wipe away every tear from our eye. That there will be no more hurt and no more pain and no more suffering. And God, we eagerly look forward to that day. But God, while we're here right now, and while we go through pain and while we go through suffering, and while we go through things that are unjust and not right, would you help us to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance in how we suffer? 
would we humble ourselves under a faithful creator who loves us desperately? God, the beautiful part of redemption is that you take the broken, the ugly, the things that don't make any sense in this world, you turn them into good. And God, we praise you for that this morning. So God, we, we ask that the suffering and the difficult and the things that we're going through right now that we don't understand, that you would use them for your good, for your glory, for your honor, that people would see it and that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ because they know the only reason that we can journey through it is because of the Holy Spirit and that we have him. God, help us to not buy into the lie that you'll only let us go through what we can handle. Help us to understand the truth of the matter that you will bring us to that very breaking point so that we understand the depth of our need for you. God, help us to understand that. God, for those who are going through immense suffering right now, God, I pray for your comfort on their lives. God, the suffering doesn't get easier. It isn't all of a sudden less painful. But help us to have a proper perspective that focuses our, our hearts and our minds back upon you. And help us to understand that this temporary thing that we're going through, it has an end. But eternity has no end. And we know that we will be in eternity with you and so we eagerly look forward to that. God, thank you for the reminders in this book. Help us to take them to heart. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us enough to allow us to go through these things. Amen.